I'd invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be referring to this a little bit later in the message, and so I'd like you to just uh, have it open. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have one this morning and would like to follow along. I want to begin by asking you how it went this past week for you. Uh, did you send a note to someone who was that person in your life who walked across the room for you? I know that at least a couple of you did because I heard the stories and I even got one of those notes myself from someone who took the time to say thank you. Maybe you remembered that person in your life and you weren't able to send them a note, but you gave thanks for them to the Lord for taking that walk that led to your coming to faith in Christ. How about this past week, too? Did you have a walk across the room experience? Were you able to, in a relationship, uh, take the initiative to talk to someone or to begin to build a friendship that might lead to opportunities for the kingdom? We told you last week that Gail and I were going to be hosting a neighborhood uh, get-together. And we did that last Sunday afternoon and about ten different households were represented. Uh, It was great to be together. Just a chance to talk while the kids played and a chance to get to know some new neighbors and uh, find out a little bit more about them and to talk about some concerns in the neighborhood and just uh, being able to share together. And, you know, it was always uh, so good to hear. I mean, it's just interesting to hear this. How, How many times people will say how much they appreciated that someone took the initiative to organize this or someone took the initiative to invite people to come. I think we're all so busy in our lives that hospitality becomes almost a lost art. Opening your homes or inviting people to come for something that's kind of social as a get-together isn't done quite as frequently as it used to be done. And so when you have an opportunity like that, people really appreciate it. And I look at this as, you know, nothing big on one side happened last Sunday afternoon, but there was an opportunity to build relationships and it creates opportunities for God to work in the future. I want to recap what we talked about last week in the message that started this series, Just Walk Across the Room. I said that God wants all of us to be that kind of person. God wants all of us to be a walk-across-the-room kind of person. And if we are to do that, remember we said we need to be willing to leave our circle of comfort to enter the zone of the unknown. We need to listen to the Spirit's promptings as we go, and we need to take those first steps. We need to be the initiator to reach out in those relationships to someone else. Well, the question we're going to talk about this morning is, what do we do when we get there? Okay, you've taken this walk across the room. You are now standing there with another person that you might not know, and you're kind of wondering, what do I say? What do we look for or think about? What do we pray for? What do we do in that kind of situation when we've walked across the room? Well, walk across the room people are people who live life in 3D. Now, I'm going to explain that this morning. We have a large D here. I got to want to explain what this is. It's just a metaphor for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, this isn't Sesame Street, but it is a large, large D. You know, some people were wondering about that. And that just goes along with today's message. Uh, last week, we had 
a gift that was up here during the whole service. And I know some of you were sitting there wondering, when's he going to open the gift? You know, <laughs> when's he going to, you know, what's inside there? And uh, the question came up during the week. And one of the guys who uh, understood what I was getting at last week said, what do you mean? He took 30 minutes to unpack the gift. <laughs> we were talking about the single greatest gift that we can give to someone else is to introduce them to the God who loves them and cares for them and has a purpose for their life. So last week we were thinking about the gift, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came because He loves us and He died for us. And He came so that our sins might be forgiven and that we could spend eternity with Him. Today we're going to talk about, with these three D's, the different ways that we can build a relationship with someone so that we might have an opportunity to talk about Christ. So walk across the room, people, or people who live life in 3D. They are constantly looking for ways to do three things, and they all begin with the letter D. The first one is this. We are looking for ways to develop friendships. We want to be a people that are developing friendships with others. You see, if we are going to reflect the heart of our Father in heaven, We need to be in a search mode, continually looking for ways to build relationships to bring others to Christ. We need to be people that are looking for those kind of opportunities, thinking about the needs that people have, reaching out and taking the initiative. Now, when we first came to know Christ, that may have been easy for us because we probably had a circle of friends who were not believers. You know, I think about, for me, I I shared with you how at age 10 I accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I believe that was a genuine commitment, but in high school, I kind of was walking the fence. I was more interested in sports and activities, and I was still going to church. And for me, it wasn't until I was in college when I would say that, in a sense, I was soundly converted. And God grabbed my heart, and my life changed. And I began to grow in my relationship with Him, and I thought about my friends in high school and friends that I knew in college, many of whom did not know Christ as their Savior and Lord. And I wanted to share this good news with them. I wanted them to know the peace and the joy and the hope that I was experiencing in my life. And I took the initiative to do that and share with them and saw God work in many of those relationships and saw people come to faith in Christ. But what happens for us as we grow as a Christian is that over time our circle of friends can become filled with all Christians. I mean, they're the people we know. We do a Bible study. We go to church together. We hang out together socially. We do things. And that's great that we have Christian friends and we want to continue that for our kids and for us because that helps us to grow in our faith and to stay strong. But we've got to have room for those people in our life who do not know Jesus Christ in order to reach out to them, to build those relationships so that others might come to know Christ. If our circle of friends is just limited to Christians, I mean, it's pretty easy to see how that can be a barrier to evangelism, isn't it? But what is even worse is when this happens in the life of a believer. When someone has been a believer for so long that they no longer have any Christian friends and their heart begins to grow cold. And they look at other people in a way that looks down on them. And sometimes believers can get to the point where they create 
walls or they have prejudices, they have attitudes toward other people where I don't want anything to do with them. Why would I want to hang around a non-Christian? I left that world. Why would I want to spend time with them? When that attitude seeps in, it is just death to evangelism and to the kingdom. It can happen in our hearts. We can all have sort of a list on who we think is in and who we think is out. Who we like and who we want nothing to do with. That's what was going on in Luke chapter 15. And that's why Jesus told these three parables. I want you to notice how this story begins. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, rather than rejoicing that sinners were coming to Jesus, or in seeing that as a good thing, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought it was scandalous. They were shocked by it. I mean, Jesus welcomes sinners and He eats with them? To a Jew to sit down at a meal with someone and to have fellowship together over that meal implied some sort of acceptance or friendship. How could Jesus be the Son of God and be a friend of sinners? It just didn't fit their list. I mean, they had the list on who was in and who were the people that God accepted and who were the people that were out. And they wanted nothing to do with those individuals that they considered as sinners and outcasts and especially tax collectors. I want to share a little bit of background information to help you understand how strongly they felt about this. In their culture, in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, tax collectors were considered basically as traitors or turncoats. They were people who collaborated with Rome to prey upon fellow Jews. They had basically sold their soul for money. They had said they would work with Rome to collect taxes. They were given freedom to collect more than was their due. And they had authority to do that. And so they took advantage. They were robbing their own fellow citizens in that culture. And they were despised and hated by others. The synagogues would not accept their offerings. Their testimony was not accepted in court. They were held to be worse than the heathen because they should have known better. That's how low they were looked upon. They were the worst. I mean, it would be like taking whoever you would think in our world might be the worst of sinners, and that's what they were like. And here Jesus is hanging around them. And one of them even becomes one of His disciples, Matthew. Can you understand why the people who were the religious people of the day were shocked by it? I mean, why would Jesus do that? What is this all about? And you know what's even more shocking in this is that in Jesus' eyes, the only people more scandalous in this story were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who could not have cared less about sinners. The real shocking people in this story were not the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. The real shocking people in this story were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who could not see what Jesus was doing. 
And so Jesus told these three parables that are all about the heart of God and His love for people. He begins with the parable of the lost sheep in verses 3 to 7. Jesus told them this parable, and He says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and rejoices together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know, one sheep out of 100 is not a big deal, is it? It's not a big loss. This shepherd could have let it go, but he didn't. And why didn't he? It's because he cared about sheep. And he valued that lost sheep. And when he found the one that was lost, he called his friends together, and they rejoiced and celebrated his good fortune. And Jesus says, that's what God is like. God cares about lost people. And every time one comes home, there's a party in heaven. In the parable of the lost coin, look at verses 8 to 10. He says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. For this woman, one coin equaled a day's wage. She was a poor woman. And so her loss, one out of ten coins, would be more substantial And for her to find that lost coin, she would have to get down on her hands and knees. She would sweep the floor. She would be looking about. I mean, uh, homes in that day didn't have electric lights like we do. They probably had a window and a doorway, and that was pretty limited. And so the room was dark most of the time. And so in order to find that coin, it would require time and effort. And she would need to light a lamp and get down on her knees and look and search every nook and cranny that she could find until she recovered that coin. Have you ever lost something of value to you and had to search for it? Have you ever lost a ring? A wallet or a purse? Maybe your car keys that were misplaced and you have tried to find them. And you have searched all over your house trying to discover those things. For some people, it happens maybe more often than others on uh, losing things and needing to find them. I thought of one time when I was back uh, on the farm and uh, it was harvest time and I was uh, driving the truck and my dad was driving the combine. And when we'd harvest, we'd, uh, whenever the combine got full of grain, I would pull up with the truck and we would dump that hopper load. Well, I had been on one of those breaks sitting up on the box of the truck. I had climbed out of the cab and was sitting up on the box. And when I uh, was ready to go again and I slid back down, I must have slid off of that truck box and it pushed the wall out, out of my back pocket, out of my jeans, and it fell out. I didn't know that till a good while later when I was going to be driving on the highway to take a load of grain into town and I didn't have my wallet. And I thought, where did that go? 
I'm wondering, is it in the box with all the grain and it's now buried and it's going to end up going into an elevator? Is it on the ground in that stubble field where we've just harvested? Where could it be? And I remember praying and asking God to help me find it and trying to think back where it might be. And on that particular day, after searching and looking in a stubble field, like trying to find a needle in a haystack, I was able to go back and I found it laying on a track where the truck had driven and it was there on the ground and I was able to find my wallet that was lost. Sometimes that happens. It's amazing how God can direct you or bring things back to mind where it might have been and other times they're gone and we don't have it. But anyone who has lost something of value knows what this woman went through when she was trying to find her lost coin and she rejoiced in her good fortune of recovering that. What is this story telling telling us about God though and about reaching the lost? Well, it's telling us that reaching the lost takes time and effort on our part. But every time one sinner repents, there is joy in the presence of the angels. God Himself rejoices. I like the way that this passage says it in verse 10. I always have found that intriguing. When Jesus said, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He doesn't say here that that the angels rejoice, that it's their joy, but He's saying that there is joy in the presence of the angels. And whose joy is that? That's God's very own joy. The angels see the heart of a father who loves the lost and who rejoices whenever one sinner turns from his sin and turns back to God. The final story I think is the most powerful of all. It is the parable of the lost son. And you know the story. It's there in verses 11 to 31. It's a story about a father who has two sons and the younger son wants to leave home. He goes and he asks his father for his share of the inheritance. We don't know what the issue was. We don't know if this son just wanted to spread his wings or if he was unhappy about things at home or what was going on. But he wanted to leave and take his money and go. And things seemed good at first for him, I imagine. He had money. He had friends. He had people who liked hanging around him because he had the resources to really party and to live life well. But when the money was gone, what happened? The friends leave. There's no one there to help him. He has to hire himself out as a servant to a Gentile. How humiliating that would have been for someone from his background. On top of all that, he is is feeding pigs who are eating better than he is. And meanwhile, every day, his father is looking down the road and wondering, is today the day? When's my son going to come home? Is today the day? The story goes on and it tells us that finally that day comes when the younger son comes to his senses. He realizes what he has done and what he has lost. He confesses his sin to God. He asks for God's forgiveness and he determines in his mind that he's going to go home. He has in his mind what he's going to say to his dad. Dad, I am not worthy to be your son. He is sorry for what he has done and he wants to go home and be reconciled to his father. And what happens when he returns home? 
while he is still a long ways off, the father sees him and he runs to embrace him. Fathers in that culture didn't run to their sons. That is an astounding thing that is said there. Fathers would wait for the son to come. Fathers would be demanding of the son or fathers would be critical of the son for what he has done. And here is a father who is waiting and watching and who runs to embrace his son and welcome him home. We read in verse 21 what happened. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. There is joy, there's a feast, there's music, there's dancing, there's celebration going on in this home because this son that was dead is now alive. And Jesus said, that's what God is like. God is watching and He's waiting for lost children to come home. God is loving and He is forgiven. God is lavish in His grace. This story is often called the parable of the prodigal son. It could also be called the parable of the prodigal father. And why is that? It's because the word prodigal actually has two meanings. On the one side, the word prodigal means to be extremely wasteful. And that's what the son was, who took his inheritance and wasted it on uh, wild living, if you will, on squandering the resources that he had been given. But the word prodigal can also mean to be extremely generous. And that's what the father was. The father also was prodigal. He was extremely generous. Lavish in his grace and forgiveness. Lavish in his unconditional love for his child, his son who had come home and who welcomed him. But there's another part to this story and it concerns the older son. In verse 25 it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house and heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And he said, Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I don't get that. And the father said, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The younger son was separated from his father by distance and by his disobedience. But the older son was also separated from his father 
The older son was separated from his father, not by location, but by the attitude of his heart. He did not share his father's love for this son. And because he did not share his father's love or have his father's heart, he could not share in his father's joy when this son came home. The older son had to deal with his attitude, didn't he? And I want you I want you to think a little bit about that. Can you imagine if this oldest son had met his younger brother first? What if he had seen his younger brother coming and he went out to meet him? He might have said things like, Who do you think you are coming back here? You think you can just walk in here and be a part of the family again after what you've done? No, you need to clean up your act first. You need to do this and this and this and then maybe you can come back. And maybe Dad will take you in. If the older brother had met the younger brother first, that younger son might never have come home with the kind of attitude that the older son had. Note how generous the father was with the older son too. He said, everything I have is yours. The older son just didn't see it. He didn't share his father's heart. And the question that I think Jesus is asking all of us here is do we have our father's heart? Or are we more like the older brother? Do we care about the lost in our community, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our family? Or are we indifferent to them? Or we don't care? Are we critical and judgmental of others? Or do we love them as God loves us? Do we share our Father's heart? You know, that's why Jesus came. In Luke 19.10, the Scripture says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That was His mission. And that's what He asks us to do as well. You know, when I look at my own life and I see how God has had to work in changing me, I wouldn't be where I am apart from God's grace. I look at, you know, I'm 52 years old and I'm still learning things about legalism and grace. About attitudes that I have and freedoms that there are in the Christian life. I look at my mother and I grew up in a home where when I was really young I had this thing sort of figured out, I thought, where my parents and my mom especially was extremely loyal to whatever she was a part of. And so I grew up you know, thinking that the way the world was was you had to be uh, Lutheran, you had to be Republican, and you had to drive a Chevrolet. And that's just the way it was. You know, and it, and it was kind of attitudes that you pick up. And I remember in those days growing up where there was more um, uh, of a division at times between uh, different churches, denominations, and things like that. And so you didn't want to cross lines and you didn't want to do that. And all of us sort of have those things in our mind about who's in and who's out. And we might divide people politically. We might divide them by race. We might divide people by their religious background or preference or by their lifestyle. And there are barriers there that need to go down. And one of the amazing things that I saw in my mom's life was after my dad died, 
how God did a work in her. And her attitudes began to change. And some of those barriers that she had held up all her life began to change. And she had a Bible study with a number of other widows, about a dozen other widows in our community that came from different churches and backgrounds. And there was a woman there who had been Catholic all her life. And I don't think my mom had ever had a friend who was Catholic because she was Lutheran. And here was this woman who came and who had never read her Bible in her life and who began to study it in this Bible study and who became a good friend and who came to faith in Jesus Christ. There was another woman that my mom began to reach out to and talk with who uh, their family owned a bar and restaurant in town. And I think for my mom, you know, she never would have had a friend who owned a bar. She just wouldn't have done that. But God lowered some of those barriers in her life and she began to reach out to this woman who came to faith in Christ and grew in her relationship with God and became a good friend. There were walls that went down and I think if God can do that for somebody in their 70s and 80s, that's pretty good. And maybe God needs to do that in our heart as we think about those things that are barriers to us in terms of developing friendships and reaching out beyond our circle of friends. And I think about this and I say, God, help me to be a friend of sinners because I'm a sinner too. And I wouldn't be here except for the grace of God in my life. So what can we do to develop those kind of friendships? There are two other D's I'm going to share with you this morning and I'm going to move through them more quickly. But the second one is that when we go, we need to develop stories or discover stories. Excuse me. We need to develop friendships and discover stories. One of the best ways to make friends is to enter their world and listen to their story. It's important for us not to try to give answers before we know what the questions are that people may be asking. And we need to be patient in that. Three years ago, our church did a study on 40 days of purpose. And we walked through that together as a church. And we were encouraged to uh, begin a kind of an investigative study in our home or neighborhoods where we can invite others to come. And in our neighborhood, there was one woman who we had known for 10 years, and we invited her. She came to this study. And we had never before really had spiritual conversations of much depth with her. But when we invited her at this time, she wanted to come. Her mother had recently died, and she had questions about things spiritually and what happens when you die. And she had other questions in her life too. And she came and as a part of that study that we did, she made a commitment to Christ. And she, uh, um, after the study was done, it was just for a few short weeks that we did that, Gail and another woman in our neighborhood continued to meet with her and, and uh, uh, get together and talk until they finally moved out of our neighborhood. And it was good to see how at just the right time, God opened the doors for the gospel to be shared in a way that she could hear and understand and that made sense. You see, when we listen to people's stories, we discover needs that people have. And then we can share the gospel and our story more effectively. And in the process, we don't bruise the fruit because we can wait and pray because this is in God's hands ultimately. Our part is to be the messenger, to share the good news. But it's God's part to change hearts because we can't save anyone. We can't push someone into the kingdom of God. All we can do is share the good news of what God has done for us. 
So we need to listen to where people are at and discover stories. And then thirdly, we need to discern next steps. All the while that we are meeting with people or developing friendships or listening to their stories, we are praying. We are saying, Lord, what do you want me to say or do? What does this person need to take the next step in their life? And we think about that prayerfully. And sometimes that next step is for us to be an encourager. Sometimes it is encouragement. And just encouraging them to take a step or to check things out. Sometimes it is prayer where we say to someone, we hear about their need and we say, could I pray for you? And could I pray about that? And that's all it is at that point. Sometimes it's unconditional love. Sometimes they feel like they've blown it or they are hurting and you come alongside of them and you are a friend and you love them. I know for those of you that are involved in mentoring students and some are involved mentoring at our middle school and some with uh, the drug court and situations like that, you know, I know I've been told, you work with kids, there are going to be times when they disappoint you. You work with kids that are coming out of dysfunctional families and situations, they'll take one step forward, they take two steps back, and they need somebody who's just going to be consistent and love them unconditionally. Sometimes it's a book to read. Sometimes it's sharing your story. Sometimes it's challenging their thinking. Maybe they're just, they're just wrong in their thinking and you need to challenge some of the assumptions that they've made. Sometimes they put up barriers against God and you need to challenge them and say, would you be willing to pray a prayer like this? That God, if you are real, would you show yourself to me? And would you be willing to do some study and look into that? Or would you be willing to talk about it from the Scriptures? Sometimes it's an appropriate verse of Scripture that just is right on target. Sometimes it's an invitation to come to church or your home or a study. And at the right time, it's the Gospel. The Gospel doesn't need to be shared all at once, big picture, from Genesis to Revelation. That's usually not the best way at all. Usually the Gospel is shared step by step. Helping people to understand that there's a God who loves them, who sent His Son to die for them, who has a plan and a purpose for their life, and who is waiting for you to come to that point where you say to Jesus, Jesus, would you be my Savior and Lord too? Bill shared in his book about this relationship when he went sailing with this guy, and this guy found out that there was going to be a pastor on board this sailing ship. He thought, oh no, you know, I don't want anybody preaching at me. I don't want anybody sharing this. And Bill saw that, and the way that he brought those defenses down was really by just being a friend, asking about family, about needs, and at the right time, God lowered the defenses, opened the door, and here's a man who came to faith in Christ, and it's really neat to see what happened. I want you to think this morning in terms of application. What were the next steps that were important for you in coming to faith in Christ? How did God bring you along step by step? Because that may be very important to remember. And then secondly, if you are meeting with someone now, what is the next step for them? What would be the best thing that you could do for them? This week, I'd like you to pray. And to pray that we would love people like God loves them. Pray that God would do a work in us. That all of us would become that kind of walk across the room person. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace and mercy that You show to us and that You don't give up on us, but You're still at work. 
Change me. Change my heart and my attitudes, I pray, so that I would see those around me as you see them and love them as you love me and you love them. Father, forgive us for any critical, judgmental attitudes that we may have had and help us to be the kind of person that introduces others to Jesus Christ.